0: Welcome to episode number 26 on the My Story Podcast. On the My Story Podcast, we feature interviews with leaders, influencers, and entrepreneurs who tell their story and the life lessons they've learned along the way. Hi, I'm Conrad Weaver, your host for the show. I hope you're having a great week and that you're on the way to fulfilling your purpose in life everyone has a purpose including you go after that and work toward fulfilling that purpose and you'll find more meaning and fulfillment in life than you ever imagined you know I think that's what today's guest on the my story podcast did we're gonna hear my interview with Michael Albert Michael is an American pop artist and the founder of an art form called serialism and we'll hear more about that later. He began his career in business selling food products to grocery stores and boutiques in the New York City area. Today, he travels around the country leading workshops and teaching people how to create art out of ordinary products most of us throw away. Full disclosure, Michael is a client and friend of mine and we're working on a full documentary film about his work and his art. So stay tuned for Michael's fascinating story here on the My Story Podcast. Hey, at the end of today's interview with Michael, I'll share a few takeaways I have from our conversation. It's something new I have started a few weeks ago, and I encourage you to share your takeaways on our Facebook page or in the comments on Apple podcast or on the podcast homepage. Let's engage with each other and inspire and challenge each other as we uh, think about the stories that we hear here on the podcast. I also encourage you to share this episode with a friend if these interviews have meant a lot to you. Let someone else know about it. It's a part of living life with purpose and meaning, sharing the good things that we hear and that we like with our friends and family. And if you could leave a review on Apple Podcasts, that would be awesome. I really appreciate it. And now here's my interview with Michael Albert. Well, Michael, welcome to the My Story Podcast. Thank you. It's good to have you here. We met maybe a year and a half ago when you actually stayed at my house. We have an Airbnb at my house, and you were one of our guests. So tell me a little bit about who you are and what do you do?
1: Uh, Well, my name's Michael Albert. I'm an artist and an author and a businessman and i live in white plains new york and i've been making art for about 32 years since i since my college years i did not study art formally i went to nyu new york university and i studied business and it was while i was studying business there at nyu that i started to become interested in art and started experimenting with my own art i guess i realized that some of the great artists of the world you know of art history weren't formally trained and that art was one of those things that you could kind of do and teach yourself you know there are certain techniques that it's helpful to get training in but really the best way to to learn how to to uh, make art is to sit down and do it, and I think the more you do it, the more your own style develops, the more you uh, hone your craft, and also, I guess, most importantly, the more you realize if this is something you really like to do,
2: because
1: hmm. it takes a lot of time, and uh, you know, and you, I guess, we spend time doing the things we like to do if we have a choice. Yeah. And, um, and I guess I like to do it cause I still been, I still create art as much as I can 30 years later.
0: Wow. I want to get more into that art, but I want to go back to the very beginning. So where were you born? where did you grow up? And, uh, all that. Give me, give me some background there.
1: Okay. I'm, I'm 53 years old. I'm, I was born in Far Rockaway, New York in Queens. It's kind of near Kennedy Airport, JFK Airport, about 25 miles from New York City. I grew up in a town called Woodmere, which is just over the border in Nassau County, Long Island. And I went to Lawrence High School, graduated in 1984. And I have two brothers. I'm the middle of three boys. And in our house growing up we really didn't do too much art but we were kind of just regular kids you know we did we played sports we watched TV we played games we wrestled and just hung out and did nothing like most kids do hmm. and um, my family had a family business they had a, uh, a lumber yard building supplies and lumber and those were we had a lot of discussions about business around the house, you know, growing up. And so when it came time to, uh, decide where I was going to go to college and what I was going to study, I really didn't think too much about, uh, doing anything except studying business, you know, getting a general business degree and learning about different aspects of business. And I guess my plan was to see if, uh, if i needed to be involved in my family business that i would learn things and and be an asset to them and otherwise to really see where that led and you know i think all of us no matter what it is we end up doing whatever we end up studying or whatever we end up uh, our job being have many things that we become interested in just because we like it you know whether it's uh, sports or Movies or books or music or art, and um, I think while studying business, while studying all different aspects of business, accounting and management and finance and all the stuff that you learn in business school, um, I sought diversion in my mind to learn about different things. Also, you know, so I started reading books, I started listening to different types of music. And being in New York City, I started going to museums and looking at art, and you know, starting to have thoughts about things other than business. But um, I always did like business, and I did pretty well in school. And I ended up getting into business right out of school. I did start making art while I was in college, but it was really just for fun. You know, I kind of made a concerted effort to spend a good amount of my free time experimenting with art, mostly drawing, but that was never my plan to have a career in in the art world. It was to get into business and see where that led. And my family business didn't really need me at that time. Um, I had spent summers and vacations working in the family business and liked that very much. I had some good opportunities there, but I, I guess we decided right upon graduation that I would see what I could do on my own for a little while. And um, I ended up getting into um, a business venture with two friends. While I was doing the interviewing process, my, my spring semester of my senior year, I came across a flyer for a, uh, a product from Europe. It was a wild lingonberry juice. Hmm. and uh lingonberries are like wild cranberries hmm. so it was basically a fancy kind of cranberry juice mm-hmm. and this was a while ago this was in 1988 so you know now the the mm-hmm. whole food business has changed and evolved and now we have whole foods and trader joes and you know the whole vegan movement and mm-hmm. and uh, the gmos and all that stuff but back in nineteen eighty eight, you know supermarkets didn't carry specialty items. There were specialty stores like little health food stores and little cheese shops and gourmet cafes. That's where you would get specialty type products.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And um, even the whole movement of small manufacturers making stuff and selling them to to these specialty stores didn't really exist then. You know, the newest thing at that point was Snapple. Snapple mm. was considered, you know, gourmet tea in a bottle. You know, now it's, now it's you know, as, as everyday as soda, basically. Mm-hmm. But back then, you know, there was a whole network of little stores and the idea that my friends and I had when we discovered this product was to um, sell it to as many of these little shops as we could and build a business that way and it was all natural. It was delicious, you know, and it was a pretty simple idea, you know, cranberry juice is a pretty basic thing. And just to have a, you know, a, a better version of it, you know.
0: Mm -hmm. So were you more in the sales end of things or were you in the kind of development manufacturing part of it?
1: Well, we, we, I had found a flyer for a product that existed. Okay. In Europe. And the guy that owned it was offering exclusive distribution rights to anybody who was willing to dedicate themselves to getting it into the market, into the U.S. market, starting with New York. Hmm. So at the time, I had done a little bit of traveling in my college years and done a little bit of traveling with my family growing up. And there was, I had gone backpacking in Europe one summer. And discovered this orange soda called Orangina, hmm. which um, was in France at the time. And instead of it being orange soda that you know was bright orange with with uh, artificial color and sugar, it was really more like a sparkling orange juice with pulp in it. Hmm. It was a little bit more gourmet, I guess, less mass produced. And the next thing I knew, this in my senior year suddenly this RNG soda started showing up in all the delis and supermarkets all over new york city hmm. and so when i saw the flyer for the lingonberry juice i thought this is kind of like that you know it's hmm. something that's in europe and we could be the ones to bring it to market and if he's offering us exclusive distribution rights this this could be a great opportunity hmm. so there were th- three of us and we did everything like in any startup business we started with one station wagon that one of my partners had we picked up 50 cases of lingonberry juice at the warehouse that this guy had imported it and was was stocking it and Basically, he had tried to go the route of selling it directly himself to a big distributor, and that didn't work. Mm-hmm. And he had brought in some product to a warehouse uh, just outside of New York City in New Jersey. And by putting the flyer in the NYU career office, I guess he had realized that getting a big distributor to do your groundwork wasn't the best way to go about this. You know, big distributors don't do that kind of work. you know. Once mm-hmm. there's a demand for it, then they, they focus on distribution, but they don't do groundwork for small companies. Mm-hmm. So that's what we started doing. We started going to every place we came across and quickly realized the types of places that it, it would sell into. And um, I guess the market was right for it because little by little we started opening up a lot of these little specialty accounts and it started selling and we did some samplings at stores and people liked it. And we did a trade show um, with the guy who uh, had created the brand and got a lot of interest that way. And a lot of small manufacturers that were starting to pop up at the time, you know, w- would go around to the stores we were in and ask the storekeeper, you know, this is they would say, this is my product, you know, and they would say, well, how are you going to get it to me? And a lot of the storekeepers, I think, they really liked our energy, and we were so young and gung ho about getting our lingonberry juice off the ground that um, they would say, "Well, why don't you call these guys?" <laughs> and so we built up a route. I mean, it's a it's a long story, but mm-hmm. basically, you know, we built up a network of these types of stores in the New York area, and. Um, what ended up happening, you know, to make a long story short, is that we built, we had a network of um, accounts we were selling to, and we developed a small portfolio of brands that we were selling. You know, we would pick up quantities of these products and store them in one of my friends' garages <laughs> in a residential neighborhood. And then every morning we would by this time, we each got ourselves a station wagon. And in the morning, we would load up our wagons with a little bit of this product and a little bit of that product and, you know, fill the, fill the station wagon. And we'd each have a different area that we would go to. And we'd, our job would be to try to sell to whoever we could. Hmm. We would mix cases. We'd put product on consignment. Some people were nice enough to just buy it outright from us. We would handwrite the invoices. And then at the end of the day, we'd meet back at one of our houses and dump all of our cash and invoices on the table and sort it. And it was an amazing experience and a great learning experience on doing business, on learning how to work together, on, you know, marketing. Mm-hmm. And,
0: um, and how long did you do that?
1: We did that together for two and a half years mm-hmm. until we started having, what started happening was that the products that we started to do well with, you know, if we were able to get it into stores and it started selling off the shelves, the salespeople from the bigger companies would then call these manufacturers mm-hmm. and say, you know, hey, you know, we're much bigger than those guys. Mm-hmm. You know, our territory is much wider and we have more money than them. we have a team of salespeople on the road. They're just three guys in three station wagons. How <laughs> much can they do? And so we would lose our, our products or you know our manufacturers would say, well these this company's you know regional." Hmm. so one by one, they'd say, "You can still sell our product for us, you could still buy it from us, but now this distributor's going to have it hmm. And the way it works is that um, the more you get from a distributor, the more you get like a a discount, Sure. And it's also easier to get stuff from one company rather than have ten different companies that you're working for. That's why there's been so much consolidation, Mm -hmm. you know, in every business basically. Mm -hmm. And so after a while, we learned a lot also about working together as friends. Mm -hmm. Sure. And and you know, one of the friends decided he didn't want to do this anymore. And, um, and after a while it got very complicated and the other partner and I decided we didn't want to work together anymore. Mm -hmm. And I decided to keep doing this. My, my function, we really did everything, but I guess my best, my best skill was selling. Mm. You know, I was able to sort of identify places that were right for us and go in there and make a sale. And, but I also did deliveries and warehouse runs and, you know. strategy strategy and everything.
0: And not to jump ahead in your story, but that's kind of what you do today with your Surreal brand.
1: Well, what happened is that after a while, realizing that every brand we have is going, you know, we we had a lot of pride that we were the, you know, the lingonberry juice guys. Mm -hmm. And what I realized is that we weren't the lingonberry juice guys. It was his product. He was Mm -hmm. the owner of that company's product. We were just You know, his distributor.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: So after a while, I decided that I should, if I don't create my own brand, something that's mine, that this is going to keep happening to me. And I, this is no way to build a business. Mm -hmm. So I, um, at this point, I had continued making art all along. I mean, whenever I had a free chance, uh, whenever I had time, and I was increasingly working on larger drawings you know, large scale pieces that I could kind of spend a few hours on. And then when I had more free time, go back to it and keep working on it. And there really hasn't been any time in the last 30 years where I stopped making art. Hmm. But when I realized I had to make my own brand, first I thought to myself, well, I'm I'm too busy to, to do the label and I don't know how to do the label. But I did have an idea for what product I wanted, what I wanted to call it, and started sketching out ideas of what I wanted to look like. Mm-hmm. And I got in touch with a graphic designer and said, you know, who I guess specialized in labels, and showed them my idea and showed them the product that I was looking to create. And you know, they gave me some price that, you know, very big price and sure. i just thought to myself well they also wanted to they also wanted to know well if you're ever going to use this art on t-shirts you know you need to pay us more
0: hmm. like a and royalty they, fee or something
1: yeah it's like the 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 bigger your brand gets the more you pay us hmm. and i was thinking to myself well you should pay me <laughs> i'm going to be getting your art onto all these store shelves in new york city and beyond right you know and so I just eventually I just decided to do it myself. Sure. And um, I guess a lot of the things that I've done throughout my career were 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 based on necessity <laughs> and reality. But I I came up with the idea to create a juice line, and I continued to go to museums also whenever I had an opportunity. And there was a show at the Museum of Modern Art of the artist Magritte. Uh, Rene Magritte, who famously uh, did that painting of the man with the apple levitating in front of his face. Um, mm. Did you ever see that one? I don't remember
0: that one. Yeah. well, it's Oh, a- you know what? Yes, I do. Yeah, I remember that. Yeah, one. I mean, yep. it's been used, yeah,
1: yeah. been used in advertising yes. all yes. over the place. Mm-hmm. And he also has a big eye as one of his paintings that has like clouds in it. Okay, right. Very famous. And um, I just thought I started sketching ideas of – I had also seen a show of the artist Matisse, uh, Henri Matisse, who did these beautiful, simple, bright-colored paintings. And one thing that really struck me of his was these still lives, um, which are just objects on a table, but there was a textile draped over the table – but the textile went from the top of the picture to the bottom. So the objects almost like looked like they were suspended in air.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So I started kind of like drawing fruit, the fruit flavors that would be in my juices in that kind of a way. And it kind of eventually morphed into this character of a fruit on a body, uh, mm-hmm. like one of my greets. But rather, the, rather than the fruit levitating in front of the... Um, Man's face, Mm -hmm. it became the character itself. Gotcha. Almost like a cartoon version. And then I put the eye on the fruit, like uh sort of like his eye, Mm -hmm. and and created this brand called surreal. Mm -hmm. And that type of art, my my Greek art is uh surrealism. Mm -hmm. So it was kind of a play on words, but it was a simple enough idea. And you know. I guess it was pretty, you know, based mm-hmm. on art history. It, it wasn't really just for kids. Mm-hmm. You know, was, If you got that reference, then, you know, a lot of people still think that's a very clever name. Mm-hmm. And, you know, being the fact that I am an artist, you know, part of my mission over the years, I've continued to do that. And I've launched some other products under my Surreal brand. Mm -hmm. And part of my mission is to support the arts through my brand. So it all kind of ties together. Mm -hmm. And I guess in one, in that way I've been able to connect my art and my
0: business. That's a pretty cool way to, way to combine two passions, right?
1: I guess so. I mean, (laughs) I think my brand is still very regional, very it's, Mm -hmm. you know, I am in a bunch of stores and it, it does have a cult like following, but, um, so you're mostly you know,
0: in the northeast?
1: Mostly in the northeast. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I it's been it's been challenging to be, you know, a one-man show. At, at a certain point I had some pretty wide distribution with the juice, but there's also been consolidation in in ev- like in every industry and my producer at one point got bought by a bank and then became something else and I had to find another supplier and you know it's in the beverage business you know you're up against gigantic companies hmm. you're, up, you're up against Coke and Pepsi
0: sure so how do you compete
1: uh, by not competing I guess <laughs> by just, and you know what what's what's interesting is that a lot of these big companies own specialty brands or or a good example is these massive, uh, beer companies have brands or create brands or try to buy small brands and, you know, would would like the world to believe that these are little micro brews. Hmm. They're actually not, you know. Mm-hmm. So I think there's plenty of true specialty markets and cafes still still out there and you could have a good business just supplying them with a good quality product. Mm -hmm. You know, it doesn't also have to be at every massive supermarket and Costco and, Mm. um, you know, so I guess that's,
0: that's been my niche. So describe some of your products that you have.
1: Um, Well, I have some citrus juices made down in Florida. I had orange juice. I have orange juice, grapefruit juice, lemonade. Um, I had tangerine juice seasonally. Um, I also had a, have a cider mill up in uh, Massachusetts who makes apple cider and all natural apple juice for me. Um, and then over the last couple of years, I launched a line of jam, homemade jam, applesauce, and apple butter made on a farm in Vermont. Hmm. And um, and speaking
0: so- from some experience I've had, some of this jam and it's amazing. Thank you.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's made in small batches. It's made with local fruit. It doesn't have corn syrup in it. It doesn't have anything artificial in it. Um, Our jams don't use any pectin, so you have to cook it longer to get the same uh, consistency, the same thickness, and that gives it a more intense, authentic flavor. Um, Our applesauce and apple butter are made from apples that are from a local orchard that our, our farm. Buys the apples from, and he just cooks them down, uh, and doesn't add any sugar to them. And um, and one of the nice things about it also is um, my daughter. I I'm married, by the way. I have am uh, I'm I've been married for 28 years.
0: Well, congratulations! And thank
1: you. <laughs> and we have four kids, mm-hmm. and my oldest daughter is 25. We have three girls and a boy and she is an artist herself but she's been learning um illustrator mm-hmm. and her husband actually is a has a company where he does corporate branding and web development and he's an artist too mm. so i think together they've been you know she he's been showing her some techniques and so we worked together to do the jam label so that was really special for me to um take my drawn art and have her You know, kind of clean them up and help me do the labels for the jams. Mm -hmm. It's been a great collaboration. Mm -hmm. You know, that's a wonderful thing. Yeah, it's
0: always fun to work, be able to work with your kids, and and accomplish something like that.
1: Um, Yeah, and she she lives in Slovenia. I mean, it's that talk about a long story, but um, she was backpacking and met somebody, and then they traveled together, and so we actually, you know, through FaceTime have been working on mm-hmm. the labels and, and I'll tell her, Oh, I have a new flavor I want to do. And she'll, you know, take my drawing and develop the characters mm-hmm. and we'll, you know, we kind of are able to work together, even with me being here in New York and her being in Europe. Mm-hmm.
0: So on the art side of things, uh, this for the listener who hasn't seen your work, describe some of your art. Cause you're not, I mean, you're, you I mean, the majority of your artwork is not drawing, correct?
1: Well, for the first 10 years that I made art, it was almost exclusively drawing. Okay. It started with just doodles, pen and ink. Um, I started using my my very earliest work. I would use colored pencils. Uh, then I w- did some pieces where I would sketch things out in pen and ink and color it in with magic markers. And then eventually I got a set of wax oil crayons, which were like... A fancy hard crayon with really vibrant colors and um, began working with those. And I guess almost 10 years passed before I ever made a collage. Mm. I mean, now I guess I'm mostly known for making collages, mm-hmm. but um, I definitely spent years drawing mm. and um, that evolved into collage over time. The first collages that I started making were out of different materials I had at my office and at home that I just found I didn't have any use for anymore. Um, some of it was like stickers and labels from my business. And I started collecting them. You know, I guess it's become this this obsession <laughs> of, of not just, you know, the amount of waste we create mm-hmm. in our our lives even if we're not a huge consumer Mm
2: -hmm.
1: you know even if we're not like a a terribly you know conspicuous consumer we still create so much garbage without even trying i used to do the mail at my office and this junk mail really Mm -hmm. drove me crazy you know it's just so such a waste of of paper and resources and ink and energy and you know usually you identify junk mail in about less than a second and throw it right into the trash. You know, some people get joy of ripping it in half and throwing it in the trash, mm-hmm. but you know, I didn't want to just be a mindless participant in this process. You know, mm-hmm. I still think junk mail is a terrible
0: thing. It I is. Mean, I mean, I totally agree. I, I was just getting the mail today. And I think uh, out of the five pieces I got, four were junk mail.
1: Yeah, I mean you wonder why these banks have so many fees, mm-hmm. you know, they literally c- constantly send you things you don't you're not interested in. Right. And it's, you know, somebody has to pay for these things. Yep. Yep. You know, or a company sending out 10,000 catalogs so that, you know, one person might buy something. Hmm. It's really crazy, you know. And in any case, some of the junk mail like newspapers and magazines that you would get sometimes would have like a little sticker And it would say, peel off this sticker and put it on this card and mail it in and get a free magazine subscription or a free voucher for a vacation, you know, Mm -hmm. something like that. Mm -hmm. And really what that was, was a way to get your address and email so they could send you even more junk mail. Yep. But I used to, you know, I kind of, I realized that and i just started tearing off those little stickers and some of them were like metallic and beautiful you know and i also creating my own brand and having to print labels and sell sheets and stuff i realized how expensive it is to to print a sticker that gets affixed to a little piece of wax paper that then gets affixed to a piece of newsprint as hmm. i mean that's complicated that's expensive sure you know? maybe if you're printing hundreds of thousands of them it, the price goes down. But, but you know, so I, I felt like just tearing out those little stickers and saving them, I was, you know, doing something at least. Mm-hmm. And I also found myself on the phone a lot, making phone calls to my customers. You know, once I had my products on the shelves of a lot of customers to get reorders, you know, you either have to go in and take the reorder or hope that they call you mm-hmm. or call them yourself. So I had periods of time where I would be on the phone calling customers. And sometimes just to get a quick order, you know, I'd call up a a place and say, hey, you know, can I please speak to Joe, the manager? And they say, oh, yeah, hold on a minute. We'll get him. You know, five minutes Mm -hmm. pass and he gets on the phone. Hey, Joe, it's Michael. You know, you need anything this week? Let me check. You know, (laughs) next thing you know, you've been on the phone 10 minutes. Oh, yeah, I could use a case. Thanks. Mm -hmm. Okay. You know, to to get an order that literally takes like five seconds to get, Mm -hmm. you're on the phone for 10 minutes. So I started taking all these stickers and I also had a bunch of old labels from different brands that I either stopped selling or changed the labeling for their brand Mm -hmm. and started kind of cutting them into little pieces and gluing them on pieces of cardboard while I was on the phone mm. and I felt like here I you know here I'm creating art even though I'm also working <laughs> and it's really not getting in the way mm-hmm. and I have a collection of these I call them sticker collages that I did over a period of a few years at that time and then another material I started using was photographs
2: mm-hmm.
1: that I had at home and um, you know now it's the digital age and everybody has their phones on their their phone cameras and digital cameras so people take thousands of pictures and they don't develop any of them mm-hmm. you know they've developed some i guess but not like it used to be we used to take film pictures and bring the film to the store and we wouldn't even see our pictures until we picked them up
0: yeah a couple of weeks and later that, sometimes
1: so yeah i mean actually one of the fun things was sometimes you know because you would never you generally wouldn't finish a whole role Right away you know you you'd take a few pictures at a birthday party and then the next event you would take a few more pictures and by the time you finish the roll, often you know the, the first pictures on the roll were could have been from months before sure. or even longer and it was actually really fun to, to get your pictures right like oh yeah, I remember that oh wow that was so long ago and sometimes you would forget to develop the pictures. Mm-hmm. And then you develop them and it would be years have passed. And I've actually really
0: have hard. I found about eight rolls of film in a drawer that I haven't that have been sitting there for probably ten years. So I've got to take them someplace and get them developed and see what's on them.
1: Yeah. Well nowadays they'll they'll do that for you and they'll also give you the file online. Right. You know, right. and you can then pick the pictures that you want to, but it's expensive. Sure. So it's become really expensive. But they used to have a thing, if you remember, where you know, at the at the CDS drugstore, they would give you two copies of each picture for almost the same price as one. Right. And so and what we all realized when we picked up our pictures is that many of them were bad. (laughs) You know, or now people take, you know, when they take a group shot, they'll take like ten pictures. Right. You know? With real film, hopefully you didn't do that.
0: Yeah, you had to you had to make sure you got it the first time, right?
1: Yeah, but some people still took a few pictures of each of each group yeah. shot, and so if you got doubles of that, the next thing you know, you have a whole stack of these things. And when my kids were young, uh, my oldest daughter is twenty-five now, so we were still taking film pictures back then. Um, I was doing the family photo album, and I realized, you know, once I finished my first album, that I had a whole stack of these throwaway and duplicate photos, hmm. and. Um, so that, there was another material that I, I found I had. And, you know, even, even our bad photos, we don't throw out mm. for some reason. Mm-hmm. You know, many of us, you know, I guess my age and older have boxes full of photos. Yep. And um, I started taking them and cutting them up and making like family montages mm. or just taking a picture of one person and cutting it up into pieces and mixing the pieces around and making like cubist portraits of that person mm-hmm. and of myself, self- portraits done that way. Mm-hmm. And had started having a lot of fun, you know, playing around with the images yeah. of the people that I knew and making gifts for people. You know, I, I remember my brother getting married, um, and I took all the proofs, the extra proofs after they did their album, and I made him a montage in the shape of a heart mm-hmm. of all these different pictures from his wedding. And did that for a couple of years, until one day I used a frosted flake cereal box in my in my art, and that really I think was the official beginning of, I guess whatever it is I've become <laughs> as a as a pop artist or a
0: you know a modern artist. Because that's so kind I of think- what you what you use today a lot is the cereal boxes.
1: Yeah, I mean. I guess it came from the same idea of, you know, just not throwing some perfectly nice material away just because, you know, it was an empty cereal box, Mm -hmm. you know, whether the photographs using them rather than just saving them for no reason, you know, using the bits and pieces from junk mail and and extra labels and stickers from my business because I didn't need them in my business anymore, but didn't want to just throw them in the trash. Mm -hmm. You know, so the same kind of idea happened with this cereal box. You know, one day I, I mean, it's a great story. I think it's an important story. I, I, I didn't even eat Frosted Flakes, <laughs> but I, I had a cousin who was living near my office and he was a teenager and he was helping me um, on the weekend and I drove him home and my aunt Uh, her kitchen was, was a real mess. You know, I don't know what happened, but I think the garbage pickup service had like gone on strike (laughs) and her kitchen was a real mess. And she wanted me to take um, a box that had had like a raw chicken in it just to help her take some of her garbage. Mm -hmm. And I was going back to my office where we had a couple of dumpsters and I said, you know what, I'm not going to take that in my car right now, but, there was a Frosted Flakes box sitting on the counter and it was, there was no cereal left in it. It had like the plastic bag kind of sticking out of the top. And I said, you know what? I'll take this. (laughs) Um, I got (laughs) to (laughs) go. And it's strange. I mean, you can't make this stuff up, but I went back to my office to, to finish working. I used to go on the weekend and catch up on all my paperwork. And actually I, it was my, business. So when no one was there, I would, you know, lock the door, put on some music. And after, you know, doing my books or taking care of whatever correspondence I had to, I would make art, Mm. you know, and, um, I made a lot of art after hours and on the weekends at my office. Mm -hmm. Also, I had a lot more space to work, Mm -hmm. you know, and what would you do with that art? I... What, what The art that I was making yeah, there? Yeah, Well, we actually had a hallway. Um, we had an upper floor of, a, of, it was actually one of my father's lumber yards. There was an upper floor. They had gotten a new location, and we took the upper floor that had a conference room and a couple of offices and another room. And I started putting my art all over the hallways. I mean, it was crazy. You know, at some point, somebody came up and saw that and they said, Well, what are you doing? Are you, <laughs> what, are you in the food business or are you just a crazy artist? <laughs> and um, fortunately, it was my place because if it wasn't, nobody would have let me do that, you know? But, but so I brought this cereal box back to my office and I don't know why. I didn't throw it into the first dumpster I passed, you know, and I probably passed several garbage cans and a couple of dumpsters before I got to my office and I didn't immediately use it. I put it on the floor, you know, I was like, this is a beautiful box. I saw beauty in it. Mm. I don't know why. I don't even eat frosted flake. (laughs) And, um, and then one day in my making art, you know, when everybody had left the office and I, you know, said to myself, um, at the time I was living in New York city and uh, if I left at rush hour from where my office was in New Jersey to get back to home, I could sometimes spend two hours in the car. Mm. And plus, at the time, my wife was was working, so she wasn't getting home until seven, eight o'clock anyway. Mm-hmm. So I would work for a few hours. sometimes I'd work into the evening mm-hmm. and um, and then when I drove back into the city, I didn't have traffic. Mm-hmm. So um, in one of these art making, uh, evenings, I, I noticed the Frosted Flakes box on the floor. You know, I had been cutting up lots of things. I'd been, you know, getting used to using scissors and glue, and cardboard as the base for my collages. I just took the Frosted Flakes box, cut the cover off of it, cut it into pieces, and glued them down in a mixed up order. You know, almost like, a, like a cubist rendering of the Frosted Flakes box. Mm-hmm. And I call that now the birth of serialism. Mm. But it was really, I mean, from that was the exact point where I started using that as my material of choice. That was 23 years ago now, Mm. uh, almost 24 years ago. And I've been almost exclusively making art out of consumer uh, cardboard printed consumer packages like that. Mm Not just cereal boxes. I, I, I mean, I, I love the idea of taking a brand that everybody knows mm-hmm. and messing around with it, you know, like deconstructing it, which is really simply just cutting it apart mm-hmm. into pieces and then putting it back together in my own way. And I thought it was interesting that even though the image had been broken apart and mixed up, that you still instantly know what
0: it is. It's recognizable.
1: Yeah, and and it was almost like could be a test for how powerful a brand mm. is. Because if you cut a brand up and then you can't tell what it is, then it doesn't have a strong brand mm-hmm. uh, recognition. But if you take something like a Coca-Cola carton and just cut one little piece from it, you'd say, "Oh, I know what that's from," mm. because you'd see the red and maybe you'd see the line of uh, one of the Coca-Cola letters. Mm-hmm. And you'd say, of course, that's Coca-Cola, sure. you know, because it's ingrained in our brains. Right. So, so I actually spent the next three years cutting up as many cereal boxes and other famous, iconic brand packages in the same way, um, all different shapes, all different. Uh, started really experimenting with, with. In a cubist kind of a way, I guess. Mm-hmm. But it but I also realized, you know, some somewhere around then that this was pop. Mm-hmm. This was pop art. Mm-hmm. This is, you know, like Andy Warhol type stuff. These are things that everybody knows. You know, whether you're interested in art, know anything about art, care about art, you know what a Cheerio box is, you know what a Frosted Flakes box is, you know what a Ritz Cracker box is, you know. Mm-hmm. Definitely know what Coca-Cola is, right. and um, you know? and I thought, well, why isn't this as serious a creation in terms of serious art as Andy Warhol doing a picture of a Campbell soup can? Mm. You know, but over this first three-year period, once I started doing this, I would do it almost every day. Some days I would spend all day. Just, you know, wake up and start working at seven, seven thirty in the morning and work until the evening. Hmm. Just and maybe make four of these collages. And I ended up making over seven hundred cereal box collages. And probably another five hundred or more other products as well. Wow. And so I, I think I became transformed into whatever it is I am now at that during that time. And, you know, I guess eventually what happened is that I started using, I, I would use the cover of these boxes. You know, like when a band does a, a, a version of some other mm-hmm. buddy song. Do a cover and
0: it's, song, yep.
1: yeah. Yeah, the cover version. I, I was calling these my cover versions because mm-hmm. they were literally the cover. Sure. You know, I would only cut the cover off the package, the front-facing cover, and then cut a cardboard base that was the exact size and shape of that box. So in the case of a cereal box, it was somewhere around nine by twelve inches. In the case of an Arm and Hammer baking soda box, which to me is a very iconic mm-hmm. thing, it would be more like th- three by five inches. Mm-hmm. You know, if it was a toothpaste box, it was more of a you know long thin rectangle. You know, two by seven or whatever, mm-hmm. two and a half by seven or eight. And um, so basically, I was deconstructing the image and putting it back in the exact same shape it was originally in.
0: But mixed up.
1: But but all mixed up. And then then I, but I was always saving the rest of the boxes. So if you can imagine, I started having many shopping bags full of the rest of the box, Hmm. kind of. Fortunately, I did a lot of this at my office, and I started doing a lot of it at home also. But so I had a lot of, you know, people thought that I was collecting garbage, and I guess I I was.
0: (laughs) Repurposing the the garbage into something beautiful, right?
1: You know, at one time, I really thought I was going crazy because I started saving all the uh, stamps from all the mail that I got. (laughs) And... So I was basically saving all the envelopes mm-hmm. as long as it had a canceled stamp, you know? Mm-hmm. And at some and I I think I did that for like a year or two and I had a couple boxes full of it and I just then I realized
0: this is crazy and I threw it out. <laughs> <laughs>
1: I didn't know what I was going to do with them but I was like I'm not going to do anything with these. And I just threw them out.
0: You know some of the art that I've seen that you've done and actually that yeah I've got some prints that you've given me are are these uh big pieces with words. So you have the the Gettysburg address, you have the Lord's prayer, you have other iconic uh verses and and even maybe some speeches that you've cut out of letters out of you know, letters that we recognize. Um,
1: yeah. So, yeah. So I, I guess the next phase of this all was starting to use different elements from these same packages, but for different ideas. Um, and one of them was using the letters from all the packages to spell different things out. It really started with this idea called the last breakfast, which you know, after a while of doing these cereal box collages, I started thinking that this type of art was, I named it serialism mm. as a joke. You know, <laughs> I, I think a lot of the names of art movements either started as jokes or insults mm. in any case, impressionism and fauvism, and a lot of this, you know, were critics mm-hmm. sort of making fun of these new art movements. But so in that, I, I decided to start calling these serialism, and now teachers are like, you know, when I go visit a school, they say, oh, "Michael Albert, the founder of serialism, is coming." <laughs> but um, I, I thought to myself at some point, thinking about art history, that well, if Da Vinci did the Last Supper, I should do the Last Breakfast, <laughs> and you know, with uh, with the central figure, the Jesus. Mm-hmm. Surrounded with his 12 apostles. So I thought, well, this would be fun to pick these characters from famous brands. Mm-hmm. And I used my surreal character as the central figure and then picked 12 of my favorite cereal box characters and surrounded him, you know, mm-hmm. kind of like the way the table is set mm-hmm. in the Last Supper. And then I cut out letters in the background and started spelling out messages like, Do the right thing and love your neighbor and try your best Mm. and be patient and be careful and be kind and things like that. And to me, that was a real turning point for me because I realized, you know, these materials, people don't necessarily consider them serious art materials. and But to make art on subjects like this, you know, to me, these are the golden rules of life. Mm. Sure. You know, it's not a joke. It's serious. And, and I just thought to myself, imagine if somebody puts this up because they love Captain Crunch, or they, you know, love the Quaker Oats guy. And next thing you know, they're reading, do the right thing, you know, be a good person. Uh, Try your best, be kind. And, and wouldn't that be an amazing thing that not only people would, would, you know, get some sort of a joy out of looking at something that's fun to look at, but be inspired to think about important things like that.
2: Mm.
1: And so from there, I did some, I did, I loved picking characters to represent the 12 apostles. So the next one I did um, was a much larger scale piece and I called it the Sermon on the Mount, Mm. you know, where Jesus gave his message Mm -hmm. to the multitudes. So for me, it was like an excuse to not just have 12 characters, Mm -hmm. but the multitudes. (laughs) So I spent like, almost a year doing a 32 by 40 inch collage wow. with it. I must've had, you know, six or 700 characters that I found on all different brands. And again, with a bunch of these types of messages in the background mm-hmm. and, um, and I really loved the, the messages part of it, mm-hmm. you know, not just the characters. And so then I started doing some pieces that were all messages. Mm-hmm. My first one was, a collage called You Know What They Say, which was just a collection of idioms and common language phrases that we all say mm. that, that to me convey lots of wisdom, like conventional wisdom, mm. such as, uh, don't count your chickens before they hatch, and hindsight is 20 and great minds think alike, and what comes around goes around, and... Um, seeing is believing, and just all these sayings that you hear people say. Usually they say, you know what they say before they say one of these (laughs) phrases. That's why I titled it that. But so that was my first collage that was all words. Mm. And then, like what you were saying before, the next one that I did was the Gettysburg Address. And to me, that was another very pivotal piece for me because it was the first collage of a famous, serious, historical... Uh, document, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. that um, I use these everyday consumer brand iconic letters fonts to to express it. And um, as soon as I started showing that, I, I made a poster of it. And as soon as I started showing that in the world, uh, teachers and history buffs—there's so many Civil War and Lincoln buffs out there—really responded to it. Mm-hmm. And teachers, you know, I mean, I love learning about Lincoln and the Civil War. That's one of my favorite subjects. Mm -hmm. Lincoln's writings, you know, his speeches, his life story, everything about him. And, um, but kids aren't necessarily as into it. Right. You know, I mean, you know, they, I think a lot of kids are like, yeah, my dad's really into that. Mm -hmm. (laughs) (laughs) But but for some reason when when it's spelled out with letters from all your favorite consumer brands and on one level you can look at it and say oh there's the you know the A from Coca-Cola and there's the F from Frosted Flakes and there you know and kind of have this fun interact interactive relationship with that element of it and then you find yourself reading the Gettysburg address mm. and You know, I I, I did it partially because I thought it would be kind of silly to do the Gettysburg Address in this way. Mm. I didn't realize, you know, the effect that it was going to have. And it really has inspired me to do many other speeches and famous text from not just history, but literature and famous quotes by people. You know, there's so many inspiring quotes that people say, Mm. that people use in different ways. And so, ever since I started doing that, which was, I guess, I made the Gettysburg Address in two thousand three, um, I've been on this quest to identify passages and lyrics, song lyrics, is another one that are meaningful to me. You know that that I like, and trying to sort of memorialize it in my own art. Mm-hmm. And it's you know it's become like a collection of. Things I'm interested in, or that I've learned about, or that are meaningful to me, mm-hmm. and I think that in in a lot of cases, other people feel the same way. Mm-hmm. You know, clearly there are millions of people who realize the Gettysburg Address is a beautiful, meaningful um,
0: thing. Right. right. You know, the other well, fascinating piece that that I'm really fascinated by is are the maps that you make.
1: The the map was an idea that I had. There's a famous pop artist named Jasper Johns, and I think he's most known for his flag, his American flag, which is a painting, but it's, I forget the, I think it's an encaustic painting. Okay. It's something like newspaper is kind of used and paint, and but it's a very straightforward representation of the American flag and people, it's beautiful. Mm. I'm just, I don't know. It's very, very well-known. And another one of his well-known um, pieces is a map of the United States. And it's, it's a painting in the shape of the United States and there's some stenciled names of some of the states and it's very colorful. And I just, by this time, I had been doing these very dense collages of words. Um, and I just thought, oh, I could do my own version of this map By simply spelling out all the names of the places you see on the map, states, capitals, and other famous cities and landmarks, and just place them where they would go geographically. Mm. And um, so, I made my first map of the United States. Took me months to make, and I really worked on it feverishly. I think I put four hundred hours of work into it. I would just, I really became obsessed with it. And, and it's still to this day, people see that and they're just like, it looks like a jumble of confusion, (laughs) just a whole bunch of letters crammed together. And then when you start looking at it and reading, Oh, there's Florida, there's Nebraska, there's Mexico and everything's where it should be. And I think it's just fun. And I have to say, I
0: agree. I mean, we have a copy of that, a print of it and, to look at, I mean, the more you look at it, the more you discover. And it's just fun to dig into it. And you can just spend, you know, hours looking at it and finding new things that you've put on that map.
1: So it is a lot of yeah, fun. Thank you. Thank you. Well, I've done a number of maps now. I've done some state maps. I've done a couple of versions of the United States map. I realized on that first one, I made some spelling errors, but people pointed that out to me. And... um I'm actually going to a school uh, in a couple of weeks for a week where we're going to be doing a map of their city, New Rochelle, New York. And all the students now I'm working with, um, it's an elementary school. So they, that goes up until fifth grade. And this is going to be a piece I make with the fifth graders and they are all picking a street or a place in their city. And then they have to cut out the letters to spell it. Mm. And when I come, One by one, they're going to come up to me and we're going to place it on the map. And over the course of the week, probably it'll take a little longer than that too. I'm going to finish this map of New Rochelle that was co-created with, you know, the graduating class of this elementary Mm -hmm. school. And it really, some of these ideas can just be done, you know, infinitely. Mm -hmm. I could do an infinite amount of maps. I can do every county, city, country, the world, Mm -hmm. You know, with the text pieces, I can do, you know, all sorts of text, lyrics, poetry, passages, sayings. And, and with the deconstructing, deconstructing of a package, I could be for any package. And you could even do the same package an infinite amount of times. You know, I, I, I love Monet. Monet, I think, was the first artist that took a subject. And did like twenty or thirty paintings of the same scene. Hmm. So I don't know. I did
0: not realize
2: he, that
1: he he did these haystack paintings where he would and the haystacks would be in summer, in winter, at sunset, at midday. You know, so with through his paintings, he was capturing different types of light on the same hmm. image. And he also did one of a cathedral, the Rouen Cathedral, which was something I guess he could see out of one of his studios in France. And the Metropolitan Museum has one of those paintings. But I think there were like 25 of them that mm. he did of the same view. And I just love those. Mm. And I, you know, I think he was the first one to do that. But when I started realizing that you know, it's really no different than me doing 25 versions of the Cheerio mm. box. It's the same image, but each one is completely different, you know, cut in a different kind of a way for however I felt like doing it that day. And you know, somebody might say, "Well, those are Monet's, you know, impressionist masterpieces." And those are just cereal boxes. But I think, you know, maybe mine are even more relevant to our our world and culture today. But either way, it's the same thing, you know, it's variations on a theme, jazz Jazz musicians do that all the time. That's what jazz is all about. Right, right. You know, so anyway. Well, it's
0: been, I mean, your, your artwork is amazing. I love it. And uh, I want to ask you this. So on this podcast show, I've always like to ask, you know, what are some of those big life lessons you've learned over the years?
1: Well, I guess the main one is uh, that whatever your goal is, you know generally it's a if it's a if it's a serious one, uh it's a lifelong thing. you know it doesn't just happen even if you know it's it's everything worthwhile takes lots of time and effort. and you know, like I said at the beginning, what you find out is if this is something you really continues to be interesting for you and hold your attention, you know. And keep you motivated to doing it, because if not, you would stop and do something else. Mm-hmm. So, but you know, I, I think also we don't know where where any of these things we do lead. Mm-hmm. You know, and you know they say you should live in the moment for the moment and just do what you can do now. That's what I try mm-hmm. to do. I mean, I think um, I hope. I've had the great opportunity of traveling around and doing these workshops where I'm able to show my work and talk about my work and meet people. Um, you know, I guess I just want to continue doing that. I, I would love to do it at some, at the Museum of Modern Art and the Metropolitan <laughs> Museum and some serious art institutions, you know, if things develop that way. But I guess the most important thing is uh, – Loving what I do right now, because that's all
0: I really mm-hmm. have. So what's the next big thing for you?
1: Um well the summer this when I met you, I was on my, my summer reading tour. You know, all the libraries in the country have this thing called the summer reading program. And I have developed this this two hour program where I go to libraries and do a workshop. And I've been doing that now for about 12 years, and it just keeps developing. So right now, I'm, I'm developing my summer tour for 2020. Last summer, I had 115 programs in 18 states. Wow. And I drove 14,000 miles. I mean, oh. it sounds crazy. One of the highlights is I traveled with my son, John, who's 20, for about mm-hmm. a month, And we just had a great time on the road, and then we would get to the library and do the program and then find somewhere to eat and stay in Airbnbs and drive through the country together. So this coming summer, I was just accepted to do
0: um, all the libraries in the state of Delaware. That's amazing. So how many libraries are there in Delaware? There's 33.
1: Wow. Wow. So over the course of about two and a half weeks, I'm going to do all 33 libraries and have a chance to really see the state and have a chance to work with people. I mean, I think the library is is really the center of the community mm-hmm. where people go to learn things, where it's a safe place, you know. In the summer, it's they're, most of the time they're air conditioned, mm-hmm. you know, and um, – and they're places of learning. I mean, it's it's such an honor to go to a place like a library and be invited as a guest artist author and have a chance to tell a group of people who are interested enough to come. I mean, they're free programs. That's another thing I love about it. You know, I don't want to exclude anyone. And um you know, to have a pe- bunch of people who are interested in looking at my work and and wanting to know a little bit about it, and then doing the same project that I do mm. is is a real honor. And so I'm just hoping to uh, continue to have opportunities to get out into the world and meet people. And you know the more you the more you I feel like we're sponges, mm. you know? and on one level, we need to soak up information and experience. But on another level, we need to take what we've soaked up and use it. You know, there's no mm-hmm. use in just being full of information and experience and not doing something with it. Mm-hmm. So for me, doing these types of programs kind of does both for me.
0: Mm. That's I,
2: awesome. You
1: know, yeah.
0: So. So, so where can people find your art? Where, where is it available to purchase? Where, where can they go to find that?
1: I Well, I have a website, michaelalbert.com, and there's information on there, and there's also uh, my posters and some merchandise that I've had made that you can buy. Um, I also have a Pinterest, which I love as a tool because you can just sort of organize your stuff really well. I've been using that, and I have over 3,500 pins Wow. which are all examples of my work as well as photographs of events I've had. Hmm. So a lot of times I'll just, if I want to, if, if a collector or somebody who's interested in my work wants to see my work, I send them to my website. I send them to the Pinterest.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: I think it's uh, com slash surrealjuice, S-I-R-R-E-A-L-J-U-I-C-E backslash. Um, I'm sure if you just put in Michael Albert art, mm-hmm. it would come up anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, and also to Google Michael Albert artist, and you'll see a bunch of articles. A lot of times when I go to these local venues, libraries, and been going to a lot of children's museums and regular museums and doing family programs, I've got gotten a lot of local press, so there's a lot of stuff to see. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you know people call, can call me my my email address is right on my website and they could contact me and we can uh discuss it
0: awesome well michael yeah. it's been great having you on the my story podcast uh, your story is fascinating your artwork is even more fascinating and and i love your products that you sell as well as the, your your juice and your i haven't tried your juice yet but i've had your uh, your jams so that's oh. uh, We'll get
1: you some juice when you're up here in New York. That, that sounds good.
0: I, I can't wait to, uh, to, to come up there and, and to learn more about uh, your story. Thank you for your time and for uh, talking to us. And I'm sure that you'll have some, uh, some business from people who are listening that will jump over to your Pinterest page and your website and hopefully purchase some of your products there. Sounds great. Well, I'll talk to you real soon, Conrad. That was Michael Albert. American pop artist stay tuned for a full documentary film being produced about Michael And if you want to see the movie trailer that we've produced about him You can click on the link below in the show notes and I also have a link to his website and Pinterest pages And if you can't find that uh, just go to YouTube and search Michael Albert American pop artist and it will show up So a takeaway from today's interview You know feel free to chime in on the my story podcast, Facebook page. I'd really like to hear your thoughts as well. Sometimes we think what we want to do isn't what excites us the most. In my life, I grew up thinking that I wanted to be a doctor, and I went off to college and went on to pre-med and discovered that that wasn't uh, wasn't really my thing. And then I went to had a degree in psychology, and so my life took a lot of turns Throughout the course of my life, to figure out what exactly is my purpose. And, you know, I've discovered that telling stories through documentary films, through podcasts, is really something that uh, gets me excited and gets me out of the bed in the morning. So, what is it that turns you on? What gets you excited every day? Are you doing that thing? Are you doing the thing that really gets you excited the most? If not, why not? What's keeping you from pursuing? that one thing. Sometimes you have to say, you know what, I'm doing this and then go do it. Maybe it will work out, maybe not. But now you know, right? So I encourage you to go after those things that really excite you, that gets you motivated. that Because when you do that, when you work on projects, when you do things that Are fulfilling you feel better you feel better about yourself you feel better about the world and you have a different outlook you have a spring in your step it gets you out of bed in the morning and accomplishing things that you wouldn't otherwise accomplish and before I ramble on too much I'm gonna wrap this up so go out and chase that thing if you have a dream go chase it Hey, if you enjoy these podcasts and think that more people should listen I would agree with you so why don't you give me a review on Apple podcast then share this episode with a friend You can send it through a text message or an email or through a Facebook post. That would be great And be sure to follow me on Twitter Instagram and on Facebook so you don't miss an episode The music on today's show as always is from my friend Drew Davidson You can get all of his music on iTunes or Spotify or at drewdavidson.com last Be sure to subscribe to the show so you won't miss an episode and if you have an idea for an interview you'd like to hear send me a message and i'll see what i can do thanks so much for listening i'll talk to you again soon on the my story podcast